Hey friends, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm so excited that you're here on this journey. Please be sure to subscribe on your favorite listening platform, share with a friend or two, subscribe, rate, review, and you can follow me on all social media platforms at gift to shift. And you can also visit me at gift shift.com. Today's episode is with Amber Peckham. She's a writer and artist. She's a marketer whose life was instantly changed by a traumatic car accident. To some extent, she believes that she manifested this accident. Yes, I said that correctly. She feels and believes that she manifested this accident as a product of the traumas of her childhood and what her younger self thought would solve them. Her recovery was called a miracle by doctors and family, but what seemed like a victory covered a darker reality. From releasing deeply held illusions about control to coping with a spinal fracture and a traumatic brain injury to overcoming five years of opioid reliance, the shift triggered by a few moments of experience continues to manifest in her life today. I'm so grateful that she took the time to be with us today. So listen in. So tell me more about that. How did that come together? Like, tell me the story and then let's just kind of go move forward from there. Yeah. So the accident happened on a Sunday. I was driving from Indianapolis, which is where I live now and where my family lived at the time and continues to live. So I was driving back to Chicago, which is where I was living at that time, right after graduating from college. And, um, there's a stretch of highway, this U.S. highway that goes through Lafayette, Indiana, that is really known for accidents. So it's very flat farmland. I mean, this is farm country. So it's just like, there's no buildings. There's nothing to like distract oh, you. you yeah, it's crazy. And so the place where the accident happened is like pretty known for this sort of thing. But what happened was I was driving and I was going really fast because I needed to get back to Chicago by a certain time to meet with this girl who I met on Craigslist, who I needed an apartment. And I was like, I'm going to get an apartment. I don't know anyone here. I moved there by myself after graduation because it was 2009, the middle of first recession and um, couldn't get a job in Indiana. And so I needed to meet this girl for the apartment. And I was going like 85, maybe 90 miles an hour. Wow. Fast. Yeah, and the yeah, speed yeah. limit on this road is like 75, but they, the flow of traffic is faster than that. And so you don't really get. Is it a two lane highway? So it's two lanes northbound and two lanes southbound. Got and it. then okay. in the middle is a big like grassy divider. And that's important. Okay. Yeah. So I was in the left lane and I was going to merge over because I was realizing that it was kind of dangerous to be driving so fast in the left lane. And there was someone in a white car in the right lane that like would not let me over. And so instead of slowing down to get behind them, I decided I was going to speed up, right? I'm going to beat this person. It's like oh this competitive gosh. energy and this. Yeah, like- I remember that. I don't have that anymore, but I do remember <laughs> when I did that. And so I was merging and they sped up and I was going to hit them. And so I overcorrected. Uh, going back this way. And the last thing I remember is the car spun on the shoulder. So I was going North, but I was then facing South and I took my hands off the steering wheel and I just heard this voice say, everything is going to be okay. What? Oh my gosh. I just got chills. And you've got to be kidding. So wait a second. What was the thought? Like you're, you're, you're basically 
racing. Yeah. <laughs> what you're doing racing. right. So you're you're, <laughs> <laughs> you're basically racing. And so, what was the thought like? Yeah, just like, like I'm just gonna- competitive energy. Was it like, listen, you better slow down because I've done that before. I mean, we have a highway here in New York called the Interborough, and I remember speeding down that. It's a two-lane highway with a concrete divider, and it's known for so many accidents. But so the thought was, I'm going to beat them. Yeah, I'm going to beat this person. I'm going to get in front of them. They need to get out of the way for me, right? Like, I'm going to win. And so the next thing I remember, so we're going to skip ahead in time by about 30 hours here. The next concrete memory that I have is waking up in a hospital bed and my mom was there, which I knew right away that something was wrong. So my mom lives in Nevada. So I'm like, why is my mom here? And she told me that I'd been in an accident, which was that my car rolled eight times. When I tell you that it was flat, I mean, it was literally like flat. The top of the car was like flat, like there's the hood and then there's nothing flat. I broke seven ribs and I fractured my spine in three places, twice in my neck and once between my shoulder blades. And I also severed my left temporal artery. I don't know if you can really see. I can see it. I can see it. Yeah. So I have like all the way going back into my hair, a huge. Oh, I see it. Yeah. So I almost bled to death. The road in both directions was closed for like four hours for them to get me out of the car. I was airlifted to a hospital and shout Gosh. out to Indiana. You know, we don't get yeah. a lot of like good press. It's, you know, <laughs> biased races kind of place, but we do have amazing, incredible hospitals here. And frontline and, workers. Yeah. Yeah. And so this amazing surgeon, Dr. Saad Carey, um, saved my life and saved my ability to walk like straight up. I came out of surgery and they called, and by the way, I'm 22 years old. So right, this right, like right. 11 years ago now, they called my parents in the room after my surgery and literally told them that I was going to be paralyzed straight up. The doctor wow. was like, she's going to live, but they're like, she's probably not going to walk. Oh my gosh. And oh so I woke up and I could walk. Everything was okay. And no it was way. Thing because that's what I had heard. Like right before this happened was that everything was going to be okay. And then it was. And so when you, you let go of the wheel, because I, I don't even know, I can't even tell you, like, I am sure there was a moment there. I'm sure there was a thought there, but it is like lost in the trauma right, of that. Right. It's like my brain has completely blacked it out. Like there is no memory of anything I was thinking. I do remember I have like one memory of being in the emergency room when they were stabilizing me. And I kept saying, I need to get up and pop my back. I kept telling them like, I need to get up. I need to like move around and pop my back so I could feel that there was something wrong. Right. But I hadn't like processed like what, you know, I was literally like clinging to life. And so, yeah, I can't really tell you. Wow. How incredible is that? I mean, just to be able to, I'm sure it must, does it blow your mind? Like just every day, every day, right? Because you don't remember that people are telling you, you, I'm sure you've seen pictures and you've Mm -hmm. seen documentation from that horrible accident that most people probably would not have survived. And then the doctors say, Hey, listen, you know, she'll live, but she won't walk. And then you recover or as you're recovering you, what do you say? I want to walk. Like you get, they let you get up or what, what's the, it was literally like, I mean the next day. So like my mom was there. Yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, straight up, there was what? like no, there was, I was only in the hospital eight days. I mean, there was literally almost no lag time between my ability to like wake up and my ability. I was like moving my legs in bed. I mean, it was like, there was like, it was like nothing, not like nothing had happened, but I mean, as far as physical recovery, like six, five weeks later, I was, I drove back to Chicago myself and went back to work. Okay. So you have to tell me, how did you process that recovery? Like, what were you saying to yourself in the midst of it? Like, everything is going to be okay. Take your hands off the wheel. You're going to walk now. You're going to be able to be a functioning individual in society. What was your explanation for that? That's a good question. I mean, there was part of me that wasn't really able to dwell in it for a long time. And I'm still like relatively young, but I was very young. And so I think that I benefited from this illusion that we're like unbreakable, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, oh, it's okay. Mm -hmm. I'll just get up and move on. But at the same time, it was interesting because I really felt like, so throughout my whole life, I grew up in a really dysfunctional environment. And I always felt like if something would happen to me, and this is where it gets even weirder. I always felt like, you know, if something bad would happen to me, or if, you know, my family would get this like shock to their system of like how precious we all are to each other, that things would get better. Right. That like, if I could just have something that would, you know, wake up everyone else, then things would just be great. Are you saying to me that, what are you saying, Amber? What are you saying? Yeah. I'm saying that like, I felt like at first when I woke up that to some extent, this was like something I had asked for. What? In a positive way. And no, this I is get where, it. I like, get it. But I'm just yeah. so happy you said that. Like I was going to say it. And then I was like, no, let her say it. Yeah. <laughs> because it's this whole sense. It kind of like goes right into the theme of this sense of how we are creators. Like we create our reality, our intention, and your intention is fueled by emotion. Yeah. And so that time in that period of your life of really you know, thinking of your family and wanting to change it, reform it, mm-hmm. you know, do something different in your family that as creators, you know, that energy is fueling this thought of like, if only something would change it, mm-hmm. you know, that I have control over that I can change this so that maybe this would help for them to realize X, Y, and Z. Yeah. That that's so powerful that you said that because we don't realize how masterful of humanness we are like we don't realize how powerful we are in this and so for you to say it and know it that's why I asked you you know where is it that you why do you think this happened to you and so you're saying to me and to us that there was a thought a persistent thought over and over again during very kind of tense emotional feelings so to speak and then it actually happened yeah wow So I was actually really grateful in a lot of ways, but then of course it didn't work out that way. (laughs) Oh, wait a second. So you, when you say it didn't work out, what do you mean by that? Yeah. I just mean like I, so I came home from the hospital. I was staying with my dad and you know, my mom stayed around. My parents are divorced, um, which is good, (laughs) but um, (laughs) my mom stayed around for like a week after I came out of the hospital, both my siblings were there. And so I saw really quickly that they were all really happy that I was still around, right? but that their behavior toward each other in no way was altered or changed or informed 
by any sort of like realization or extrapolation about each other based on what had happened to me. Right. And so that was when I kind of started to realize that this was for me. It was the this illusion that I had of being able to control others or that my experiences would somehow translate to learning for others, that that's not real, that that is not something that happens. And so that was the lesson for me right. that came out of it, though it didn't, you know, click right away, I guess I would say. That's a powerful awareness. I mean, that's like the heavens open up awareness, you know, you know, because it's the sense that, you know, we always control such a big, we should just have an episode on control, like human dynamics and what we feel and believe is to be true. And what we feel that, you know, we control, you know, I said this just earlier today that the illusion, and you said this, this illusion of that we have control over circumstances, people, events, and situations outside of us, when that's taken away from us, like someone gets deathly ill, if there's some type of accident that we feel like we had, you know, the part of the pain is the illusion that we felt like we had control to begin with, mm-hmm. you know, so th- that's a huge, powerful awareness. And so what was it for you? Like, what was the learning? So do you feel like that would be your pivot point, your shift when you finally realize that they're not changing, you know, or was it? something different. So tell me what happened after that realization. Yeah. So I was angry a little bit, right? I think that's natural. I think that, you know, I was very frustrated that I think my whole life since, you know, like preteens, teens, I had had this idea that this was going to work. And so then quickly realizing that no was very frustrating and hard to accept But also it really, you know, it liberated me in ways to sort of pursue what I really wanted and to see what I could control. Like I said, I had just graduated from college and I had had this idea that I was going to go to law school. I didn't really want to go to law school, but I (laughs) thought it would be a good way to make money and that I could pursue my passions on the side and that, you know, I just had to kind of settle for, you know, what was going to make me money And that all kind of just went right out the window. I'm like, no, you know, you have gotten so lucky. (laughs) You got really lucky here. And it's time to just like take advantage of what that means because you only get one shot. And to some extent, I feel like my shot was kind of used up, you know, I kind of spent all night of my lives. And so it's like, you really have to lean in at that point. And so that was when I decided to make a pivot to, you know, think about pursuing writing professionally and all that stuff. So, yeah. So how was the recovery for you? So you know, you said that you left eight days after, and I would think that there was more recovery that needed to happen mm-hmm. mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, because it, it sounds like eight days and then everything kind of, you know, went back to normal. Was that really the case? I mean, I'm sure there was pain involved and there was pain on a whole bunch of different levels, but can you share a little bit more about what that transition was? Because, you know, there's in the pivot, there's also discomfort, you know? Yeah. Definitely. So I, like I said, I was at home for about three or four weeks and that was really humbling. I couldn't like bathe myself for a couple of weeks. I couldn't even like bathe period because I had, you know, I mean, I have permanently forever two titanium rods in my spine that will never come out because, you know, I broke it three times. Um, And so that was, you know, I had to go back for follow-ups. There's always the question of like, if a few, it's called the spinal fusion, if that's going to set, 
I've read like horror stories of them not. So luckily mine did. Then when I went back to Chicago by myself, I literally, so, okay, to follow up about the Craigslist lady, I never met up with her, obviously, (laughs) but she called me like a week later when I was laying on, I think I had just come home from the hospital maybe the day before and I was like laying on the couch in this like Vicodin haze. And she's like, well, you're still the most normal person that I've met through Craigslist (laughs) so you can move in. And so I literally met her the day I was moving my stuff in. And so I just moved into this like basement apartment in Chicago, a city where I knew no one, my first job out of college. And so it was really like an uncomfortable time for me. I started abusing marijuana and prescription painkillers. And I also went through like the six month episode where I literally thought that I was dead. Like I thought that I had died in the accident and that I was living in some like afterlife where I had been given the, so it was, it was crazy to answer your question. And so did you, did you, we won't talk about the marijuana, right? Let's talk about the prescription drugs. Um, Yeah, that's all good. Right. No, but, (laughs) but the prescription drugs, were they because of the pain or were, you know, like, how did that come about? Because it's very, from what I hear stories from other people, there's a sense that it just kind of just happens organically, so to speak. There's a pain and then the medication starts and then there's, so can you walk us through that and what that was like? Yeah. So it was really like a culmination of factors. I think that the first was, you know, I had a lot of conversations with healthcare professionals about like my spinal fracture, even the ribs, like my, my lungs collapsed. So about like my breathing recovery, But what no one really talked to me very much about was my traumatic brain injury, because of course I went through one. I had like a major concussion, major like wound on my head. So I didn't really understand even until two or three years ago, honestly, the extent to which that injury impacted like my behavior, my personality, my outlook on life. Like it was very transformative, let's say. And so I was having a lot, like I mentioned, of anger and just frustration triggers about things that normally wouldn't frustrate me. So I didn't really understand. And something about oxycodone, which is the pain medicine that was prescribed, is two, you know, you take one for two hours, it's like really great. And then as you start to come off of it, again, anger is like a side effect of that. So you can either like take another one to feel better or can come down and feel angry. And so I was- Are you are you telling me that anger is a side effect of the medication? I don't think it is completely, okay. but, def- but definitely I noticed that, and this was, you know, over the course of a few years, like when I would take them and then they would start to wear off, I would just be really irritable and really frustrated. Got it. And so I don't- That would be it. Yeah. And it's an uncomfortable feeling. Right. And then there's no support on how to process what to do with those feelings, emotions, heightened, exasperated Mm -hmm. feeling that probably because of your traumatic brain injury were on a different level. And so was there support for you in, you know, you said that they talked a lot about the spinal cord and about other things that happened, your ribs and but not about the traumatic brain injury and how, you know, I have another friend and someone that actually two people that have had traumatic brain injuries. It's no joke. Like it's, it's like this silent 
I don't know the word to describe it, right? Because I've never had one, but it's it's almost like on the DL. It's like undercover. Yeah. And so because you don't you don't really see the injury per se, you know, oftentimes it's a concussion and some inflammation, but also, I mean, I don't know enough about it to talk about it, but what I hear from them, um, particularly one person, is that she had to relearn how to do everything. Yeah. I mean, you know? there was a point where I was like writing, I was like, I would write on paper and I'll be writing words backwards, like not even on purpose. I, my brain would know like what word I wanted to write down. And I would literally write it spelled perfectly correctly, all the letters backwards. in backwards order. And so it's like, but I didn't know, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't even know what a traumatic brain injury was, honestly. Right. And right. so I didn't even know how to ask or who to follow up right. with. Sure. Well, you shouldn't and, have. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, part, that's part of it. You know, I mean, yeah. yeah. And then it's compounded when I had moved to a new city. So my doctor was a new doctor and very busy woman. And so they don't know you and they hear the words spinal fracture, spinal fusion, and they just re-up your prescription for oxy because they think, wow, that's got to hurt. They don't have context either. And so that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. Yeah. They have no context. They have it from what they have read and studied. Like, yeah. But they're not going to challenge you and say, hey, do you still need this? Like, do you think that you could come off of it? Do you think that we should make this a three month prescription instead of a one month? Because it's been two years since your accident. Like no one, they don't want to challenge, I think, to some extent. And then also they just, you know, onto the, I don't want to the- I understand. Patient, you know, yeah. like, I don't know. And not only that, that, and not only that, but it's the sense of like, hey, how do you feel when you get off of it? Yeah. Oh, you're angry and upset. Okay. So maybe we can find other coping techniques and mechanisms mm-hmm. for you to be able to support yourself in that and yeah. what that would look like. It takes a little bit more time and effort, but th- there is a sense of like, this could be the easier way out to support yeah. somebody. And you're right. When I think of spinal fusion and fracture, <laughs> you know, ribs me broken, I think of pain, you know? And so I'm sure that probably had something to play in it into this, you know, prescription, the script that was given to you over and over again. And then here you are, you know, a college graduate just came out, you know, new place, new situation. And, and this is how it happens. This is the uncovering of the process because so many people can judge based on what they see in the statistics or, you know, the numbers of people who are addicted to opioids and, They don't have any context of what this looks like. Yeah. And I think we only, if we do have context, it's only for the extreme cases. Like there was never a point where I didn't have a job. There was never a point where I didn't pay my bills or didn't call my mom or, you know, there was never a point where I was emptying my bank account to go buy it on the street. Like it, if you think of the opioid crisis, I was not the poster child for that. And so I think that this maybe applies to all substance abuse I think that it's easy for people who don't align with what we expect to be overlooked because they aren't in like a deep crisis, but they are, it just doesn't show on the surface. Right. And do you think that there were any other factors that were, it was easier for you to get a prescription versus? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm white. I think that plays a big role in it. And two, to speak to this, my doctor in Chicago was black. Like even if a white doctor maybe would have questioned me or pushed me a little bit harder, maybe she didn't feel comfortable doing that, even though she's a freaking amazing doctor at Rush Medical, saving kids' lives. All You know, she had this amazing career. 
But to some extent, I think that even she probably just thought like, well, I'm not going to worry about it, you know? And so I think that definitely it's easier for me not to be judged and it's easier for me to get it. Right. And so when did you realize that something needed to change and what was that? Like, what was the breaking point for you? Or there's, you know, another pivot, I guess, and a a shift that you needed to make. It was slowly seeing it like impact my relationships because as much as you know you're never missing your bills you're paying you're going to work like all that like it's still my boyfriend who I'm still with today like he and I had sort of just started dating around that time and so just you know him noticing things like hey like why are you being like that right now or what's driving this emotion and realizing on reflection later like oh it's because you know he was here visiting, so I didn't want to take as much of the medicine because I didn't want him to see me, right? And so then right. it's not just that, like, the behavior is impacting him, but then I'm questioning myself, like, well, why don't you want to do it to right. that extent all the time? Like, right. if you think it's okay, you should be okay with doing it all the time, but you aren't, so you obviously know that it's not. But honestly, I don't know if I ever, like, I had an, I got, I moved to Indiana, I moved back to Indianapolis and I got a new doctor. And she wouldn't read out my prescription. Wow. And that is really what drove me to like make a shift because it's like, well, okay, you can't get this anymore. So you have to like learn to do without it because you can't get it. And I'm sure I could have switched doctors like, and a lot of people do. Right. Just, you know, hop around until you find someone who will give you what you want. But I really felt like in that moment that it was again, something that even though I didn't know how to ask for it, I did like to some extent, like want that gone. So it was just pretty powerful manifester there. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little, just a little. Yeah, for sure. And so that awareness when you move back and for her to have the courage or the doctor, I don't know if you said a male, female to say, yeah, you're not doing, you're not getting this anymore. And she realized, does she understand Does she know that you were dependent she was an army doctor mm. and I didn't see her for very long because my insurance changed, but she was a doctor in the army for a long time. And so I think she probably did. I mean, yeah. she didn't say it in so many words, but when someone has, you know, at that point I had been, the accident was, you know, five years maybe in the past. And yeah. so the, at that point, there's really no reason to Mm -hmm. still be taking the same medicine that you were to like recover. I mean, it's not that it's comfortable. I mean, I'm uncomfortable every day, but it's like you have, like you said, you have to learn to find other ways of coping with and managing the physical and emotional discomfort of this lifelong injury, because the answer is not to be on opioids for the rest of your life. It can't be. Right. And so realizing that you have come through this, what are you grateful for? Like, where are you now in your life? And How has that transition? I mean, this is a really important topic. I'm so grateful that you brought it up. For those of you who don't know, I don't take any notes. I think I asked the guest like one question, what do you want to talk about? And they answer. But really, it's it's a really authentic conversation. I appreciate that because it's so important. Like, you know, half of the people that we see are going through can be going through something similar or experience or be connected with someone. So I appreciate your transparency in that. And so what do you, where are you at now? And what's a takeaway from somebody who's listening to this to say, you know, this struck a chord with me. Yeah. I would say like overall, the main message I took away from the whole experience, both the accident itself and 
my long up and down of recovery is just slow down. Like literally you don't have to race (laughs) and it can be dangerous and, you know, slow down also. And, you know, listen to yourself in a meaningful and most of all clear minded way when there's a substance, an addictive substance of any kind in the mix, it makes it harder to hear yourself and gives you a way also to tune yourself out. And you just kind of have to take it day by day. I guess I would say also, like, I think that recovery is really difficult when you say to yourself, like, oh, I'm never going to do this again. Like, it's fine if you never do it again. And that's, of course, the goal. But just like, don't do it today. Just for one day, don't do it. And then start again tomorrow and take each day as a win because it is. And it might be your last day. Like, you never know. That's the other thing that I've really come to embrace is that as much as was on my mind that day when I rolled that car, like it all became really irrelevant within 12 hours. It, none of it mattered anymore. And so just, you know, keep perspective. And the best way to do that is by slowing down and listening to your spirit, because if you're not doing that, then you're just full of noise that doesn't really have any implication for you outside the temporary. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. I mean, that that's it. Slow down enough to be able to listen with the ear of your heart. Yeah. You know, you might not like what you hear. That's okay. But it's just like, you have to hear it and you have to actually pay attention to it. You can't just say, I don't like that. So I'm going to take this. And also, you know, the other thing that you said was, you know, you made a choice. You said, I could have gone to another doctor. Yeah. And I didn't, but there was another thought prior to that. That was like, why don't you want to take this when you're around your boyfriend? Mm -hmm. You know, and that awareness, you know, someone said to me, you can, there's but so much that you can work through so much that you can heal if you're not aware, if you're not aware, and particularly if you're not willing to be aware, then, you know, people are like, well, that I don't have that awareness. I don't know how to, well, there has to be a willingness Mm-hmm. within your spirit. And there also has to be this sense of, okay, I'm open to the possibility of being aware that this may be something that I need to look at and aware of the fact that I can possibly do it another way. It only needs to be 51% believable to you, just 1% over 50%. Yeah, it can go either way. But that 1% is really what changes things. And that awareness that It doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be 51% believable that possibly you can get help and support to be able to, you know, shift your life and to pivot. And so I'm just really grateful for your authenticity and and your time today. Thank you so much for sharing. And I I hope that whoever's listening and someone who's listening is supported by this conversation. Yeah, I agree. You can do it, listener. Listener. You can do it, it, listener. I love it. You can do it. You can (laughs) get beyond yay and it stops you from being your authentic self like when you're living with that like that was the thing that I noticed when I got off of it was how much it did separate me from my authenticity and I think that I am also very grateful that I have been able to let it go because I don't know what I would be right now if I was still taking it so thank you so much Amber Thank you so much to Amber speaking on such incredible. I mean, there was so much 
There was so much here in this episode, and it was so wonderful to be able to have a candid, open conversation with her. And what I love what she said most was this sense of that she had to make a choice. There was a point that she made a choice. And this is the power of the actual power of a choice. You, We are where we are based on the choices that we make. And so there was a second in time where she made a choice to say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and really slow down and listen to my inner self, my inner spirit that was asking for support and for help. So grateful to Amber. She's amazing. And I'm so grateful that you were here for this episode. Please be sure to subscribe, share with a friend or two. And I'm so grateful to talk with you. So as always, we'll talk next week.